Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Lance Thurner. Today I'm going to be talking with Professor Dominic Boyer about his new book, Energopolitics, Wind and Power in the Anthropocene, out from Duke University Press in 2019. And Energopolitics is one half of a duograph, along with Ecologics by Simony Howe, which together follow the development of wind power in southern Mexico and the social, political, and environmental ramifications of a transition towards renewable energy. I encourage listeners to also go to my interview with Professor Howe about Equalogics, as well as my interview with both authors about collaborative fieldwork and the process of writing a duograph. Without further delay, I give you my interview with Dominic Boyer, Professor of Anthropology at Rice University. Professor Dominic Boyer, uh, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you. It's wonderful to be here, Lance. Uh, I'd like to begin our discussion of your book with um, a few words about the title and how this captures uh, what this book is doing. Well, the title of my volume of the duograph that I've done together with Simony Howe is Energopolitics. And this is a, a neologism. It's a term I invented to capture... Uh, a different kind of genealogy of thinking about political power. And obviously it's inspired kind of laterally from Michel Foucault's work and his uh, concept of biopower. But energopower, energopolitics is trying to tell a story about how uh, human political power is shaped by the use of fuel and electricity. So it's a kind of genealogy of political power through energy. And uh, can you explain just a little bit about the case study that that comprises this book? Well, there's a couple of case studies, but the the actually kind of more specific case studies that we're looking at in in the project. But the overall case study is the formation of the densest concentration of onshore wind parks anywhere in the world in the southern part of the Isthmus of Tehuantepec, uh, state of Oaxaca in Mexico. So it really is a study of Mexican wind power in its period of rapid growth from about 2009 to 2013, which is when we did our field work. Can you uh, explain a little bit about the genesis of how, how did Tehuantepec become this uh, center for, for wind development? Well, there's a, there's a, it's a long story, and I'll try to trim it for the benefit of listeners. But essentially, it all goes back to the wind. Uh, you've got a natural wind tunnel effect that's created by a, a gap in the Sierra Madres in that part of Mexico, where because of the barometric pressure differential between the Gulf of Mexico and the Pacific Ocean, you have just normally, without any storm activity, sometimes winds that approach tropical storm force just rushing through this, this little canyon. And at the southern end uh, is an area that Mexican and American researchers knew was going to be a pretty optimal place for wind power development as early as the 1970s and especially the 1980s. But it wasn't really until the presidency of uh, Felipe Calderon, who most of the world knows is the guy who uh, whose government was beset by you know, narco violence and kind of dissolution and disruption of the federal state uh, during his six-year presidency. But what, uh, one of the things that he ought to be credited for is he was a true, I think, authentic renewable energy advocate and really thought that 
there was a place for Mexico to become a global leader uh, in renewable energy development, especially in the global south. And so he really helped to create the right kind of policy framework for the rapid development of this resource. And that was, you know, really what, what got it going. Mexico's long been a major oil producer and a petrostate. How is the development of wind power changing the political scene there? Well, it's not changing it as much as one would hope, Lance. Um, you know, uh, Calderon admitted to us, we had a chance to interview him, which was like one of the, the little special treats of the, of the project. We were able to interview him after he left office. And he admitted to us that sometimes the Mexican federal budget derives as much as 41, even 43% of its revenues from oil sales, which means it truly is, as you say, a petrostate. I mean, there's no doubt that without oil, Mexico would be very unable to deliver on a lot of its biopolitical promises, that is, its promises to help uh, nurture the population and, and provide certain standards of living and health and so forth. Without oil, a lot of that would be very difficult to manage. So there is a way in which the Mexican state really depends on oil and on a kind of fossil fuel economy globally for its, its livelihood. So in a certain way, renewable energy is a threat. Uh, the way folks in the government explained it to us, especially in, during the part of our research we did with the fed federal ministries in Mexico City, was that you know saving oil use at home by transitioning to renewables meant actually they could then sell more oil abroad. So it wasn't exactly you know a decarbonization measure that they were thinking about. Principally, it was kind of like let's make the most of our resource. And we've seen that with the most recent presidency uh, of AMLO, Andres Manuel López Obrador, that he really has doubled down again on petroleum in ways that I think are really going to threaten the renewable energy industry in Mexico going forward. And that's been very disappointing to a lot of people. Uh, so, you know, I long story short, I, I think it hasn't really influenced the overall political culture in Mexico all that much, but it has been, you know, a success seen from some perspectives that it that people were able to bring a lot of capacity onto the grid in a fairly short amount of time. And that itself uh, is something that you could see as being hopeful. Although, as we talk about in the bo this book and, and Simone does in her volume as well, there are a lot of problems with how the resource was developed that actually make it in some ways a cautionary tale. Yeah. And, and let's talk about that, because one of the things you write in this book is that in many ways, the way that wind has been developed in Mexico mirrors or continues the extractivist mindset that went with oil wealth. Can you explain that and how that shows up in, in, in Tehuantepec? Well, yeah. And it was a, you know, uh, Simone and I both came into this project as renewable energy advocates. We left the project as renewable energy advocates, but I think we wised up along the way that it really matters how renewable energy is developed. It is not a question of any solar, or any wind development is going to somehow set uh, the world on a new and better course. In fact, it is, as you say, quite possible to develop these resources in a way that repeats a lot of the fundamental errors and inequities of uh, 
of fossil fuel culture. And it was striking to us that when we talked to people and we tried to talk to everyone involved in this project, the proponents and the opponents and the, the, the kind of technocratic facilitators and the financiers and everyone, uh, when we talked to folks who were resisting the parks, they would often describe them in the same breath as minor, as mines and as other kinds of extractive mega proyectos or mega projects that had plagued this part of Mexico and indeed Latin America for really since the conquest. So they, they had a mindset or a kind of historical memory that reached back centuries. And I think that a lot of the problem comes back to land and the question of land tenure and who gets the benefits from the development of these resources. This is a, the Isthmus of Tehuantepec is a poor, very poor part of Mexico. It's a very indigenous part of Mexico. And in some cases, the development of this resource took place on land that had been privatized either uh, legally or kind of de facto. And in other cases, there were attempts to develop it upon communal estates or communally held land. Uh, and those were the projects that faced the most resistance because it was always perceived that a small group of uh, landowners or a small group of people in political power, political office, would be gaining these uh, funds from the wind companies and then only redistributing it to folks in their network. So a lot of people said not only did it create uh, an increase in social inequity in the region. In other words, the rich got richer and the poor stayed the same or, or got poor even because they were deprived of the use of their land. But they also said that this was a, a case in which uh, there had been greater degrees of kind of political polarization than there had been in the past, that, you know, factions that had already, already existed or had always existed really were uh, in some ways ginned up by all of this extra uh, funding that was coming through these parks and thus people were more at each other's throats than they had been in the past. The property regimes, the overlapping property regimes of Mexico are, is, is really critical. And I'm imagining most of our listeners don't have uh, much of a background on, on how that's developed. Can you explain just a little bit, you know, the types of communal property in Mexico and the way that this really shaped your two uh, main cases here in La Ventosa and Ixtepec? Sure. So essentially, there are three private property regimes in Mexico that were relevant for this study. And the first is private property in a sense that is pretty familiar to those of us in the north. Uh, you know, you have a, a group of people, a family, an individual who own a certain plot of land and they have uh, the, the rights to control what happens with that land. But there are two other regimes that are these communal regimes that you were talking about. And one of them is called Bienes Ejidales. Uh, people may have heard of the Ejido system in Mexico. And this was a really remarkable historical achievement of the Mexican state after the Mexican Revolution, and especially during the Cardenas presidency in the 1930s, of restoring to uh, peasants who had been deprived of their land probably because they had been forced to work on, on larger ranches, uh, being given the opportunity to uh, take land back from those large estates and turn them into kind of farming collectives. And that 
system really defined much of uh, kind of peasant life in this part of Mexico for most of the 20th century. It was only with the neoliberal reforms of the 1980s and 1990s that we saw uh, that land, uh, the state trying to, the government rather, trying to get people to reprivatize that land again. So the ejidos is kind of number two. And then there are the bienes comunales, which are really reserved for ancestral indigenous communities uh, who could prove that they had an unbroken connection to land and that had um, uh, traditional ways of life and traditional forms, forms of political governance that have survived this very long period of settlement and dispossession. So all three that are in play and in La Ventosa, which was one of our case studies, we had a, a mixture of private property as well as an ejido that had decided to privatize, but not without a lot of political contention around that decision. Uh, and in Ixtepec, we had this effort for, uh, to build the first community-owned wind park in La what would have been the first community-owned wind park in Latin America, which was a partnership between an international NGO and uh, one of these uh, and ancestral indigenous communal estates that we're trying to create a way to develop a wholly different model of wind development in Mexico, one that was not going in the typical way, which is a PPP or a public-private partnership model, which is the one that's been preferred by the government for the most part. Can you explain the situation Ixtepec in a little bit more detail? How did this project begin and what did villagers want from it and what happened with it? Well, I wish I could tell you, Lance, in some ways the jury is still out. And it, it may be a situation that's never resolved because I think it's reached a kind of a political stalemate or an impasse where neither side is really going to give up. But as far as we can tell, there's really no progress forward. So the project goes back you know, many years, actually predates even the period of our field work. This was in the, the mid to late 2000s when this project first started forming. And the company that folks might want to look into is called Yansa, Y-A-N-S-A. And they had uh, the, the, the idea to develop a series of community owned wind parks around the world, essentially to take the Danish model of community wind development, uh, a model that has really done well in Europe, for example, it's done well in Germany and Scotland and some other places too, but really originated in Denmark. And to take that and to export that as a model around the global south, to try to use it as an accelerant for renewable energy development on the one hand, but also on the return of the proceeds from renewable energy back to indigenous communities. So um, the current the, or the dominant model in Mexico returns about one or two percent of the proceeds from uh, a wind park's profits back to uh, community or individual landholders, which is not a lot. Uh, the Yansa model offered 50%. So as you could see, uh, a dramatically larger amount. And part of why there was so much resistance from the state to this model was because, of course, if uh, communities found that there was one model in which they could get 50% of the proceeds and another in which they would only get two, it would be obvious that there would be a lot of turmoil around that and probably a lot of people who would want to shift from the private public model over to this community-run model too. So it's a complex story in that the comuna, the, the commune, the communal estates, and the NGO were never able to get the state to even allow them to bid 
on grid access. And of course, without grid access, a wind park doesn't do anyone a lot of good. And because they weren't even allowed to bid for a grid access, uh, it led to a long series of lawsuits and injunctions where the communal estates argued against the state's electricity utility, CFE, that not only were they breaking the law or kind of writing their own law by pro- prohibiting them from participating, but they had also elected to put a substation on Ixtepecan land without full permission. So in a sense, they had put what I refer to in the book as this kind of piece of squatter grid. They had squatted some grid, a pretty important substation on their land. And for that reason alone, they should be allowed to bid. Um, and it just went back and forth for years. And you know, we heard at the time we left Mexico, the end of our fieldwork in 2013, that people thought, oh, this will be resolved in the next year or so. We checked back in at the time the books were going to press and still, you know, there have been twists and turns along the way, but no resolution. It does not seem like the state is going to allow this to proceed, especially under this new president who doesn't seem very interested in renewable energy. And it also doesn't seem as though the people in the Ixtepecan Comuna want to give up. They, they are still interested in developing this resource if it can be done in a way that is advantageous to their community. The next chapter examines uh, La Ventosa, which is uh, a neighboring village where wind developed much differently in the more traditional model. Can you explain this place and, and what it's like there? Well, La Ventosa is a small town uh, northeast of Huchitan, which is the, the kind of regional administrative economic cultural center of the area. And uh, La Ventosa is a small town and one of two now in this part of the Isthmus of Tehuantepec that is now almost entirely encircled by wind parks. And one of uh, our friends who lived there, you know, said to us, you know, it's, it's great in some ways that these wind parks are here. They have brought a lot more money to at least some people in this town, but I look at the wind parks and I think, you know, in a way there are, he said, this is the way he put it. He said, in a way there are, uh, are coffin too, because the town can't grow anymore. Uh, there's no, with this uh, industrial development all around the town and the rules against building homes too close to wind turbines, in a way, the growth of the town won't be much more than it is today. Uh, and he found that to be a kind of a, uh, an interesting paradox to think with for the ways in which there is prosperity that's associated with these forms of development. And there's also concerns about long-term impacts. We actually did the only door-to-door survey that I think anyone has ever done around wind development in this area, and certainly in this town of La Ventosa, where we hired some researchers to work with us, some locals, and we just went door-to-door and we knocked on every home and just really asked people a series of fairly straightforward questions about you know, what, what this development meant to them, what they had hoped it would bring, what it actually brought, whether they themselves had personally seen any benefit. And those results are in the book, but I, I, you know, just to kind of cut to the chase, there was a lot of ambivalence, Lance, about it and a lot of sense that, that this form of development had not brought what they had expected. They had really hoped for, above all, cheaper electricity, and they'd hoped for uh, that, the, that the, the economic boost that the wind turbines would bring would kind of have a trickle-down effect. But what they saw instead is that a lot of the wealthy landowners were using the funds that they received in these wind park deals to build second homes or to buy themselves expensive cars or to you know, buy themselves vacation homes on the coast or, or in Mexico City. And so there was a sense in which 
which a lot of the value that was being generated was immediately going elsewhere. And that life in the town had a lot of the disadvantages of an industrial center, trucks rolling all over the place and so forth, without all of the advantages one would have hoped. Now, there were some families that had benefited a lot either by being landowners or uh, being by workers on the parks themselves who really felt strongly this was a wonderful thing. But we, we would have to say that more like 60%, at least, of the people we talked to really felt as though it had been uh, a raw deal. The foreign multinationals that are, are creating these wind parks, how do they get the participation or get access to the land from the locals that they need? And, and what is their relationship with the local population? Well, oftentimes it's pretty austere. It's a pretty, it's a pretty remote relationship, Lance. Uh, we talked to a really fascinating character who we've used the pseudonym "the banker" because he didn't want his name put in. But he was somebody who has worked on millions and millions of dollars of wind development deals in southern Mexico. He himself is based in Mexico City, as most of the financial class is, unsurprisingly. But he said that the real logic to it, from their point of view, is as he said, "paciencia dinero." Paci- Patience, money, patience, money. Uh, For him, it was really about, and he put it in very, 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 you know, terms that could only be, I think, seen to be insulting by people living there. It's essentially purchasing uh, support, buying people who advocate for the projects and help make sure that that there's not too much dissent, bribery of local officials. He was pretty uh, kind of very straightforward about what was involved with Mexican wind development. And indeed, when we first started the project, we had a an encounter with a, a fellow who was the director of renewable energy for the state of Oaxaca in Oaxaca City, who really was one of the key figures in getting this wind boom to happen. And he himself, I think, participated in a lot of the politics that I just described. Uh, At the same time, you know, it was a politics that worked for local elites that was familiar in terms of how a lot of forms of elite development happen or elite kind of payoffs in development happen in Mexico. But uh, it was something that, by and large, cuts the communities out from the beginning through the end. There wasn't really a lot of uh, a process of informed consent. And this became a problem, especially in some of the high-profile cases of wind parks that failed. And in Simony's volume, Ecologic, she talks about the Mourinho Renovables project, which is probably the most spectacular of those failures. Uh, but these are cases in which, again, Bienes uh, Comunales land uh, was the target for development, and the uh, Comuna leadership uh, either had a divided opinion about it or was against it. And in these cases, the lack of informed consent became a really critical point that in, went so far as to involve the United Nations Special Rapporteur on uh, Indigenous Rights. James Anaya came down to view the situation and wrote a report that was pretty scathing about the fact that even when informed consent with communities was pursued, the companies essentially would drop a, a document on the table and say, take it or leave it. This is what we're going to do. This is your chance to give our give your consent. But of course, the communities were not allowed to weigh in at an, an earlier phase or to really think about the kinds of benefits that would have been not just individual benefits, but, but communal benefits, social benefits for a much larger group of people. And so anyway, long story short, it's been kind of a mess. And 
in our project, which was funded by the National Science Foundation, we wrote a public outcomes report where we tried to reconstruct what a better process would have been. In other words, how this renewable energy resource, which is a really spectacular resource, how it could have been developed in such a way that would have would have been more just, that would have spread its benefits more widely, and that would not have created the types of political contention, in part because it wouldn't have been viewed to be imposed from above. Can you just describe a little bit more about what your recommendations were? Well, in short, I mean, you could probably see where I'm going. I telegraphed it a little bit by saying what they were doing wrong, right? So, you know, one thing companies could do much better is rather than concentrating on on payoffs to local officials, especially to mayors, uh, they could have really focused on talking to communities more broadly about what are some of the things that we could bring that would help actually constitute a a locally meaningful form of development. So people were interested in things like having their roads paved. They were really interested in having health centers built. Uh, They were really interested in um, having uh, access to cheaper energy that would allow them to, you know, improve the quality of their life. These were not the things that typically actually happened, though. And the companies kind of threw up their hands and said, well, it's not our uh, job to build. I, mean, I, I make wind power. Why should I be building a health clinic? That seemed to them to be something that lay outside their purview. They said, well, that, a government should do that. But the governments are really relying upon these companies to build infrastructure for them. Uh, the neoliberal model you know, takes the funding away from the public entity and hands it to private interests. Uh, but then if the private interests aren't willing to fulfill some of those public needs, then they never get fulfilled. And so I think that's what we were seeing in a lot of cases. And so I think that uh, companies that are especially going into poor regions across the world to try to develop renewable energy resources really have to be cognizant of the fact that they have to take on these public responsibilities too. And that if they you know, went and started doing good things for communities, a couple of years in advance of when they actually put a wind turbine up, I think they would have built the kind of goodwill that would have gone a long way towards overcoming some of the, you know, the kind of expected forms of of factional rivalry that exist in any kind of small town. Early in the book, you ask, quote, how can we reform a human-centered understanding and practice of politics, anthropolitics, so that it can adequately comprehend and address the conditions and challenges of the Anthropocene. Can you walk us through this question a little bit and explain how your research in Mexico uh, has advanced your thinking on it? Well, I guess I'd want to make a couple of points, Lance. I mean, the first one is that, as you say, you know, we're at a, a kind of a pivotal moment in political theory as we're taking account of a reckoning with the Anthropocene and that a lot of the political theory we have has emerged from this kind of Anthropocene context. And I'm thinking, for example, of, you know, I grew up, if you will, as a Marxist and and I have a great fondness for Marx. But in doing this work on energy and the environment, I found that there are limits to how far Marx can take us because essentially Marx's model of breaking through the alienated world of capitalism involves, you know, creating a still greater productive apparatus that can satisfy everybody's needs uh, in, in a kind of highly technological and automated way so we can essentially you know just get rid of the capitalists and we have this wonderful apparatus for making useful things left behind 
that is a really energy intensive and probably environmentally problematic apparatus. And you begin to think that in the present context, Marx kind of sounds like an accelerationist. You know, ditto with, you know, Foucauldian theory, for example, theory of power. It's really kind of a, a mid 20th century. Uh, it's, it's a theory that articulates biopower and biopolitics, but it also emerges from that mid 20th century Keynesianism that also was very energy intensive, that also had a strong growth mission. Uh, and it shares that kind of growth orientation with neoliberal capitalism, too. So in a way, I think in, in, the, in our moment, which is a very unsettled moment, a, a moment where, where there's justifiably a lot of anxiety and even despair around about our environmental futures, I think this is a moment in which political theory has to do a stock taking too. And so what I try to do in the book is set out a set of concepts that I think are valuable for thinking through our contemporary conditions and that I use to orient the case studies. And capital is one of them and biopower is another in my own context concept of energo power is still another. But in addition, I think the bigger argument I'm trying to make is that above all, we need to force our political theory uh, to go into the field, to do field work, um, to actually engage the complexity of lived human experiences in a more granular way. In other words, to kind of try to overcome the universalism that has been our has kind of been our uh, our opiate, our own opiate as theorists, and instead to really think about what Claire Colbert calls the return of difference. The Anthropocene invites, demands the return of difference into our thinking, and so uh, I spend a lot of time talking about how the how concepts like capital, biopower, and energo power how they help us to make sense of this Mexican situation we've just been discussing, but how also local forms of power and even the wind itself uh, unravel those concepts and, and put them to shame sometimes. So uh, what I'm trying to show in, in, the, in the theoretical work of the volume is that uh, there is a lot of work to be done in political theory, not only to uh, develop more differential concepts for coping with our contemporary circumstances and hopefully guiding us towards better futures, but also we need to really we need to really do field work. We need to engage every human situation that we're trying to intervene in and give it its due for its historicity, uh, for its legacies, uh, and, and to try to really understand how uh, we can't have a one-size-fits-all solution, like just build more solar panels or just build more wind parks. Those can be tools to a better future, but they are not guarantees. It all depends, as we said at the beginning, about how those resources are developed according to what logics. And if we continue to repeat the kind of growth-oriented extractivist mindset of that the fossil fuel era kind of came to epitomize, then I don't think we're going to break out of this Anthropocene trajectory. I think we're just going to double down on it. Fossil fuels are often said to lend themselves to certain types of political economic structures. So, uh, for instance, the petrostates of the Middle East or, or Mexico or Venezuela, for that matter, uh, and very highly concentrated forms of capital, such as British petroleum and so forth. Do you see there being uh, political economic imperatives built into the technologies of wind power or solar power, or is it much more open-ended where these might lead? 
Well, I think that's a really interesting and, and, and subtle question, Lance, because on the on the one hand, uh, I talk about the work of Hermann Scheer and Timothy Mitchell in the in the book, and those have been two people who've inspired my own analytic approach to my material. So this is Timothy Mitchell's Carbon Democracy and Hermann Scheer's uh, um, Solar Economy would be two books I'd recommend to people who want to follow this on. And both of them have made that argument. Both of them have argued that there are there are kind of infrastructural, technical, political, economic considerations that are associated with fuel forms themselves. I mean, you think about coal and you think about oil, and one of the things that we have to immediately think about is how much denser and more energy rich these fuel forms are than wood, for example, which which preceded them, or solar, which may be what takes over in the future. Um, at least in terms of current technologies, solar is a much less uh, energy-rich form, which means that if we want to have the same quantity of energy available to us, we need a whole lot more paneling right? than we might need gallons of fuel. And that, of course, has all sorts of political, infrastructural, even aesthetic ramifications for what kind of world we're living in. And the idea of a rapid transition also is something that is not going to be accomplished without a lot of concerted political effort and will. It's not something that's going to happen naturally as a result of, of market indicators, at least not within the time frame that we need to act, according to Earth scientists. So, excuse me. So, so I do think that this question of the materiality of fuels or the materiality of energy sources and the relationship between that materiality and power, political power, is crucial to work through. And I don't think that it's necessarily the case that we have it all figured out. I certainly wouldn't say that I have it all figured out. But I do think the, the issue is that we have to recognize, A, that we have uh, the, have had the luxury uh, of growing up in a world in which we could treat incredibly dense energy as and somehow inexhaustible energy as being our birthright. And again, this is really, you know, the global north that's had this feeling. Uh, and that, you know, we have this imagination that it should be able to persist infinitely into the future. And, and that just, it just is not going to happen that way. And so I think part of the civilizational transformation we're looking at is moving uh, to a, a place where we have a, a greater, um, on the one hand, degree of energy citizenship, in other words, political identification and action centered on energy, but also I have to say a kind of a humility in terms of understanding what humanity can reasonably demand from uh, Earth systems and from uh, its environment and from each other. I mean, that we can't imagine that we're going to be able to relentlessly grow and grow and grow. Where we see that fantasy being extrapolated is, of course, the Elon Musk fantasies of escaping Earth and going on to live on other planets. Um, I just, I mean, again, I just don't think that's going to be the solution. Whatever, whatever is going to happen to our species is pretty much going to happen here, and it's going to happen within the next century or so. So it's a time in which uh, we have a, a great deal of control over our fate, um, but we have to pay attention to these issues and these politics. And that's really, if you will, the the kind of the call behind this project is just a, you know a call to uh, get woke on these issues. One of the fascinating elements in this book is the way in which wind power is being grafted onto the infrastructures and technologies of energy transmission that were built on a fossil fuel regime. Can you explain a little bit about how this shaped the development of wind power in southern Mexico and 
and the way in which energy infrastructure constrains the transition to renewable energy. Right. I mean, I think another way of putting that is to say infrastructure has a lot of inertia built into it, right? It has a, it, it is itself a kind of stored potential energy system in which we have put a lot of labor, uh, intellectual labor, material labor, and materials over time in such a way that it's very difficult to unwind it all at once. And, you know, with wind power, it's fascinating. I mean, some of the most interesting parts of the research from my point of view were the conversations we had with the engineers and administrators who worked for that uh, much maligned electricity utility CFE that we were talking about before. Uh, they were fascinating because they they really had still a mindset about the grid, about the electrical grid that was predicated upon fossil fuels uh, and upon what they called baseload resources, which is a term we also hear a lot about in the global north these days, too. It's been a big focus of the Trump administration, for example, is you know critical baseload resources, by which they mean coal, by which they mean uh, natural gas, and by which they mean nuclear power. So this is not just a, a matter of the Mexicans being late, uh, kind of behind the behind the curve. Uh, in fact, it, they're right with mo where most petrostates are at this time, which is uh, basically saying unless we have energy constantly at the ready, uh, ready to go on, the lights will go on every time you hit a switch. Unless that's always there, we are failing in our, uh, if you will, energopolitical uh, mission, which is to provide energy for growth, energy for advancement. And what I talk about in the book is, you know, wind power and solar are, are forms of energy that are, are are known widely as being intermittent, and they are. The wind blows sometimes, the sun shines sometimes, but not always. And often we heard the engineers and administrators, again, both at home and abroad, saying, well, you know, you can't imagine really having a grid that's focused solely on renewables because it just wouldn't work. I mean, it would be too complex and too uncertain. And, you know, what if the what if the winds were to, to die down for three or four days straight? You know, people are still going to want their electricity. And, you know, it, it is a it is a chimera. It's a it's a, an illusion. Uh, the fact is that even so-called baseload power is not as secure and, and steady as people say, you know, nuclear power plants have to be cleaned, coal plants have to be closed down from time to time, too. Um, and, and or, you know, we see it sometimes they explode. I mean, the, the, there are other kind of disasters that are uh, another factor with these very uh, intensive energy forms, too. But um, this is a, a situation in which the grid, as it has been designed in the 20th century, really has the logic of fossil fuels baked into it, uh, fossil and nuclear fuels baked into it. And so as we imagine what the quote-unquote smart grid or green grid of the future might be, or even the, the non-grid of the future might look like, uh, we will probably have to or be able to uh, develop renewable energy forms that that work in tandem or even at cross purposes with the logic of grid. And, you know, you've seen that in Germany, which was a country that became a solar energy powerhouse uh, without having a lot of sunlight even, thus showing that it's possible to, even for countries that are pretty cloudy to be run, um, uh, have solar energy be a big part of the mix. But they slowed down the energy development because they realized the grid operators were going out of business. And uh, they were, you know, in some ways, Ener renewable energy 
Pre- pre- presents a kind of existential threat to the infrastructures that were built in the fossil fuel era. And that is something we really need to take seriously. We need to think about what are the appropriate kinds of infrastructures that we need for a renewable energy future. And I would just say, I'm not just talking about pylons and, and power lines there. I'm also talking about the more social infrastructures, the political infrastructures. Uh, and one of the things that Hermann Scheer uh, had, a, I think, utopian, but a nice utopian ambition was said, you know, if you could get rid of the the high voltage grid and if you could bring electricity back under the control of cities and communities and neighborhoods, uh, you wouldn't really need to have a uh, maybe a, a translocal government in the same way we used to. We might not need to have a state. Um, the, that energy grid was built to to fuel the machines of war in World War One and World War Two, principally. Imagine if we could have energy, the energy systems that were more local. Wouldn't that give our local political participation, our local political uh, being, a kind of a boost as well? And I think that's something hopeful to think about. Uh- that covers most of my questions about the book. Uh, is there anything we haven't covered that you want to make sure is here on the recording? You know, I think there's a lot to say about the form of the project and the, the duograph form. I know we're going to cover that in a separate podcast, but maybe we should shout that out here in case people want to to, to listen on to to some of the more methodological uh, dimensions of the book and, and why we did two volumes, two single authored volumes instead of one synthetic volume uh, to, to cover these studies. I would say that's something I'd like to talk about. But I think in terms of the, um, the story about wind power, the only thing I'd want to leave people thinking about is just that this is not a criticism of renewable energy any more than it is a you know championing of renewable energy. We need to think of renewable energy, like all energy, as um, as media, as instruments for achieving certain kinds of social and political purposes, and. You know, what I think we need to, to do, those of us who are renewable energy advocates, is just make sure that the political purposes we're oriented to is not just uh, changing over uh, the, the forms of energy that feed into our grids. Um, I think we need to think about the kind of world we need to remake or how we need to remake this world such that it's not necessary to have this kind of this kind of civilizational uh, overhaul in the future. In other words, I think, as I said, if we can imagine a a future that's more oriented towards a a humbler and and more sustainable form of of human modernity, I think we we wouldn't be in the situation in which um, we would find ourselves in operating in crisis mode and trying to prevent environmental collapse by, you know, accelerating building wind parks or building um, solar arrays uh, without you know, giving ourselves time to build the relations of consent that are meaningful and to, you know, develop, make sure that we are not further dis- uh, disadvantaging people who have been long neglected, marginalized, and indeed oppressed uh, by the northern powers that be. So I just want to leave with that kind of message. I, I think it's cautionary, but it doesn't mean that we should we should give up the struggle. In fact, we should keep the struggle going for renewable energy. We should just broaden our, our ambition to to, re, to making a, a, a better, more just society along the way. Well, that's a, a, a good note to end on then. So, Professor Boyer, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I greatly enjoyed this book, and I, I highly recommend it to everyone I know. Thank you, Lance. It's been a terrific conversation. I've really enjoyed it.